really excited to have this next talk. Uh, Christine Duran's been a, a pioneer in the use of virus-infected organs to improve the health of, of persons uh, with and without uh, HIV infection. And so she's the, the, the right person to, to bring this lecture to us. Christine's an assistant professor uh, of medicine at Hopkins, uh, and I'm really excited to hear her talk this morning. Thanks, Dave. It's always nice to have your boss give you an introduction. He always says such kind things. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about um, management of HIV-infected individuals who need a transplant and also some of these exciting new frontiers. So I can tell you what my objectives are, because I do remember those. Um, but what I'm hoping you'll get out of this today is that of the patients that you take care of in your clinic, you'll be able to recognize who is an appropriate candidate to refer for HIV transplant. And then the other big thing that I think you as HIV providers can help with is to optimize their antiretroviral therapy before they go to transplant. The other thing that I think is a, a hot topic in this area is what to do about your hepatitis C co-infected patients. And in particular, when are you gonna treat them? Do you wanna treat them before their transplant, after their transplant? And what are some of the pros and cons to talk with those patients about? Um, so these are my financial relationships or my disclosures and we already went over my objectives. So I'll start by just talking about the burden of disease in this population, which I'm sure you're all well aware, and then some of the outcomes, what your patients can expect if they do go on to get a kidney or liver transplant in particular, since that's where the data is. Then I'll shift gears and talk about some of the management challenges in this patient population, hepatitis C, rejection, drug interactions, and infections. And I'll spend about the last five minutes talking about the exciting new frontier of the possibility of using HIV-infected donors for HIV-infected transplant candidates. So as you well know, kidney disease is common amongst those living with HIV. Up to 30% of individuals will develop CKD depending on the cohort that you look at. And this can be due to the virus itself, common co-infections like Hep B and C, as well as some of our antiretroviral agents such as atazanavir. Um, in addition, we're seeing growing causes of the same causes we see in the general population as those with HIV age have metabolic complications, hypertension, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. So what this means is that in some about 1% to 2% of everyone on dialysis is estimated to have HIV infection, with more than 10,000 individuals in the United States on dialysis having HIV. Liver disease is also quite common, again, because of hepatitis B and C, as well as alcoholic uh, liver disease. And again, as we're seeing metabolic complications as individuals are aging, more and more so we're seeing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as a complication for those living with HIV. What's the burden of disease in some? Well, this was a study out of the DAD group, and in the most recent era between 2009 and 2011, 13% of all deaths were due to liver disease. Once HIV-infected individuals develop end-stage organ disease, unfortunately, they do worse than those without HIV. This is data from the U.S. renal data systems looking at survival on dialysis stratified by HIV infection. And you can see that for those who are HIV positive, um, mortality is very high with 80, nearly 80% 80 at 10 years. You see the same trend with those who develop end-stage liver disease and HIV. 
This was a study of the liver transplant wait list at a high volume center, University of Pittsburgh, and the death rate for those with HIV was double those without HIV. Unfortunately, there's also decreased access to transplantation for this population. This was data from the NIH multicenter transplant study, and it showed that those with HIV were less likely to be offered and receive a liver transplant compared to everyone else in the UNOS um, registry. So now that you hopefully agree that your patients are at risk and once they develop end-stage organ disease, they do worse, it accelerates more quickly, how do they do if they um, go on to transplantation as a therapy? So for this, I'm going to draw from two data sources. The first, um, many of you may be familiar with the NIH multicenter transplant recipient study. It was done at 26 centers across the United States, and Mount Sinai here in New York was a participating center that enrolled many patients. Um, and so for the kidney transplant trial, there were 150 individuals who went on for kidney transplant. They had well-controlled HIV with CD4 counts over 200 and undetectable viral loads on therapy. You can see there it was a young cohort, median age of 46, predominantly African-American males, and the causes of end-stage renal disease are listed there. So how did they do? Here are the Kaplan-Meier survival curves. We're looking at patient survival on the top and graft survival on the bottom. And the study population is the line in black, which is in the middle. And uh, they actually did better than the comparator group, which in this study was higher risk individuals who were over the age of 65. In fact, three-year survival was 91%, very similar to the general transplant recipient population in the US. Last year, Michelle Rowland published updated results from this cohort and shows that this excellent survival extends out to four years. We can also look to the transplant registry database. The advantages of this is it's outside of the clinical trial setting, so all comers, not just those who are in the NIH trial. And we can look at longer-term outcomes. So we looked at over 500 individuals in the US and matched them in a 1 to 10 matching on the um, characteristics based there. So we could really look at outcomes um, for those with the same age. And even in this analysis, going all the way out to 10 years, there was no statistically significant difference for those with HIV. So take-home messages, outcomes are excellent, and patients can um, expect to do just as well with the transplant in terms of survival as their HIV-uninfected peers. What about liver transplant? So here, again, is the data from the NIH trial. The difference here is that we're looking at co-infected individuals. So really, everyone was going to transplant for hepatitis C um, and HIV co-infection. In this case, the CD4 threshold was a little bit lower. And this is, uh, was allowed because with cirrhosis, patients will have splenomegaly and sometimes an artificially lower CD4 count that's not necessarily an indicator of advanced AIDS, but rather of their cirrhosis. They also allowed candidates um, to have any viral load because there were some individuals who just couldn't tolerate ART due to the liver dysfunction. Uh, median age, as you can see, was 49, and this cohort was predominantly white. 35% of them were going to liver transplant to cure cancer, and the rest were decompensated liver disease from hepatitis C. So again, here are the survival curves, um, patient survival on the top and graph survival on the bottom. The study population is shown in red, and it's compared to those with hepatitis C mono infection alone. 
The difference, as you can see here, is that those with co-infection did not do as well as hepatitis C mono-infected individuals. And at three years, there was about a 20% lower survival. However, I think it's important to keep in mind that there is still a survival benefit for those with um, HIV. So they did not necessarily have another option. You can't go on dialysis for your liver disease. So although mortality was higher, the survival benefit still held for anyone who had a MELD over 15. I'm gonna skip through these because I think it's from my prior slide set in the um, interest of time. But that's kind of a transition to some of the management challenges. I think um, because we're in a new era of hepatitis C treatment, we also expect some of that disparity to go away now that we have the opportunity to cure hepatitis C infection in our co-infected candidates. So in the NIH um, transplant recipient study, they tried to tease out this factor in the kidney side. So did hep C co-infection make a difference for our kidney recipients? Um, and unfortunately, they just weren't powered to answer this, but there was a trend perhaps that um, hepatitis C co-infection also made a difference in kidney. In the um, registry data, we were able to be powered to look at this a little bit better, and it did appear that hepatitis C in on top of HIV made outcomes worse after kidney transplant. So this is just really more motivating factors for um, us to try to eradicate hepatitis C in this population. And fortunately, we have tools in our toolbox to do this. Um, DAAs have very high cure rates, and this includes in studies of patients on dialysis as well as uh, transplant recipients. But I will say to keep in mind that for your treatment experience cirrhotic patients, the cure rates are a little bit lower. And so that can kind of play into the pros and cons of when to treat. So for your patient who's, um, who's considering transplant, what are the benefits of treating beforehand? Well, the first um, and foremost is you can cure the disease and hopefully prevent progression of further liver disease. And I think this is in particular important for your liver transplant candidate. So if you have someone who's coming to you and they have a lower MELD and perhaps treatment and cure of their hep C could prevent the need for a transplant, I think this is a good patient to treat. And just as a general cutoff, um, some studies suggest that 15 is probably, a MELD of 15 is where that breaking point happens. So if you have a low MELD patient um, who's who has advanced fibrosis is probably a good patient to treat. On the other hand, higher MELD candidates may not experience the same benefit. They may have to go on to get a transplant anyway. The other reason to treat is um, if you can eradicate the virus before you put in a new organ, the new organ will never get infected. And that can prevent um, complications such as fibrosis and cholestatic hepatitis or uh, glomerulonephritis in the kidney transplant setting. Now, of course, you would treat your patients soon after transplant, so the question really is, how much does this matter when we're talking about a difference of maybe a few weeks post-transplant? The downsides of treating are that um, you will exclude hepatitis C-positive deceased donors for your transplant candidates. And in particular for kidney transplant, this has a huge impact on wait times in our region, um, both at Hopkins and here in New York City. The difference is if you can accept a hep C-positive donor, you'll get a transplant within a few weeks. If you have to wait for a hep C-uninfected donor, you'll likely wait a few years. 
Uh, the other thing to consider in your liver uh, transplant recipient or your liver transplant candidates is if you do have a decompensated cirrhotic, it is harder to cure them. So if you don't get it right before the transplant, you now may be bringing um, resistant virus into the post-transplant setting, which just makes things more challenging. So besides hepatitis C, what are some of the other complications that you might see in your transplant recipients? This one was fairly surprising, but uh, we found that HIV-infected individuals have higher rates of organ rejection. Uh, the investigators had actually hypothesized the opposite, perhaps due to a weak immune system, they might be less likely to reject. But in the NIH trial, as you can see here, rejection rates were three to four times those in the general population, with 40% at three years. Saw the same trends when you look at the National Registry data, a little bit lower when we look at all comers here, but still um, about twofold higher than what's seen in the general population. Um, I will make a side note here that there are different induction immunotherapies, and for those who received a particular type called antithymocyte globulin, this effect did seem to be lower, so less rejection in those. Um, the same things was seen with liver transplant, so high rates of rejection and, in particular, early rejection, both in the NIH study as well as the registry study. So what do you need to know about the immunosuppression? I think there's just a couple kind of key take-home messages. First is um, for your kidney transplant recipients, they'll either get antithymocyte globulin, which is lymphocyte depleting, or they'll get something else. And I think it's important to know that because the ATG will take their CD4 count down very low. And I like to tell my patients that before they go into transplant, because for a lot of them, they've been watching this number for years. It has a lot of value to them about how they're doing. But if we checked CD4 counts in anyone post-transplant who got ATG, it, they would be very low. So I just like to let them know your CD4 count will drop, and it will probably take one to three years to recover. Um, that's the induction phase. The second phase of the transplant immunosuppression is a cocktail of um, usually three drugs that they will remain on um, potentially for life. And this is typically mycophenolate mofetil, steroids, and either a calcineurin inhibitor or an mTOR inhibitor. So what's relevant for you all is for um, patients who go on the calcineurin inhibitors like cyclosporin and tacrolimus, there can be some challenging drug-drug interactions. And this is um, in particular with the pharmacoenhancers like ritonavir and cobacistat because they also boost the calcineurin inhibitors which can be managed. However, um, with this, in order to maintain safe troughs, you have to give very low, infrequent dosing of your calcineurin inhibitors. For example, you give them a pediatric dose once a week instead of uh, two milligrams twice a day, as you would for a patient not on that regimen. And because we saw these very high rates of rejection in the trials, we wonder if this is really an effect of being underexposed to um, the tacrolimus itself. So I think now that we have 29 FDA-approved drugs um, in our toolbox, what most providers will try to do is just get them on a regimen that avoids this interaction. So while you can manage it, why put the patient at risk for rejection if there's an alternative regimen? 
There's also some interest in potentially beneficial ART regimens. In particular, there's interest in Maraviroc, which is a CCR5 antagonist, as you know. And this was really born out of some early observational studies in HIV uninfected individuals who had deletions in the CCR5 gene and seemed to have really excellent survival after kidney transplant. There was also an interesting study in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at Maraviroc in HIV uninfected bone marrow transplant recipients to prevent graft-versus-host disease, and it was effective. So Maraviroc may have a, a potential benefit to decrease rejection rates. There's a trial going on now as a follow-up to the NIH transplant trial that will hopefully answer this question. And it also doesn't cause the problematic drug-drug interactions. So theoretical benefit, but no data to uh, really prioritize this. What about post-transplant infections? So. Um, a history of an opportunistic infection is not a contraindication to being a transplant candidate. And in fact, in the NIH trial, nearly more than a third of the individuals had history of opportunistic infections, and you can see them listed here. Um, surprisingly, there were very few post-transplant opportunistic infections. And in particular, if you look at the types, these are lower, um, sort of lower severity OIs cutaneous Kaposi's sarcoma, and candida esophagitis. I think the big message is that there were no recurrences of the same OI post-transplant, and that there were no survival differences for those who had a history of an OI. So if your patient is well-controlled now, a history of PCP is not a concern for them to be a transplant candidate. When we looked um, at this a little bit deeper in the National Registry data and also tried to tease out whether it mattered uh, what kind of induction therapy you got, did it matter if you got ATG and your CD4 count dropped, um, we did not see a difference. So infections were common, more than 50% of patients had one, but these were mostly urinary tract infections for your kidney transplant recipients. While there were some AIDS-defining illnesses, these were mainly CMV, and this is one of our most common post-transplant infections, even in HIV-uninfected transplant recipients. Again, no difference for those who received lymphocyte-depleting induction, and there was actually a trend towards lower infections in that group. So if you're at a center that uses ATG, I would reassure your patients that although their CD4 count is going to drop, this has not been associated with more severe infections. What, what you will tell them is they're going to go on prophylaxis again, as they may have done in the past, and this is really standard for um, all of our transplant recipients. The difference is for PCP prophylaxis right now, the guidelines say that if you have HIV and you get a transplant, you should stay on it for life. That's really just expert opinion. Um, CMV prophylaxis will be the same whether you have HIV or not, and that really just depends on your CMV status and your donor CMV status. Uh, other things such as MAC prophylaxis, histoplasmosis, really are going to be CD4 driven and um, history in the patient driven. And for most patients um, at our center, we require a, a one-time transplant ID consultation before to help um, tweak some of those prophylaxis decisions. So um, for the last 10 minutes or so, I'll talk a little bit about the newest frontier, which is um, quite exciting, and that is the possibility of HIV to HIV transplant. 
So with these encouraging data of outcomes, we have seen a dramatic increase in the number of HIV-positive patients that are receiving transplants. On the left, you can see kidney transplants in the year 2000. There were just a handful that were done. And then in 2016, we've finally gone over 200 um, in the country. With liver transplant, there's been a fourfold increase, but it has sort of leveled out around 30 to 50 transplants a year. Although if I updated this for 2016, we actually did see a jump above 50. And I think that's really a reflection of DAA therapy making uh, providers more comfortable about transplanting this population. However, with this increase in need and demand for organs, there has unfortunately not been a concomitant increase in the donor supply. So there are currently 116,000 plus individuals who are waiting for a transplant, and last year there were less than 10,000 deceased donors that were identified. So novel donor sources are needed, and if we could find a source for HIV-positive patients, this would help everyone on the list as everyone could move up. We know from South Africa this is possible. This is a picture of Dr. Elmi Mueller, who's the transplant surgeon there, who really pioneered this field. And in South Africa in particular, patients living with HIV didn't have even dialysis as an option. So this was really, um, she was literally saving lives of people coming to her center. The first four cases were published in 2010 and all of them did well. Last year, she reported on um, 27 transplant recipients who have also had very, very excellent um, patient and graft survival with no indication that um, this should be worse with HIV-positive donors. So why were we not doing this in the United States in 2010 when her data came out? Well, it was actually illegal. It was banned as part of the, North, uh, the National Organ Transplant Act. And um, so it really required an act of Congress to get this reversed. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dori Segev, who's a transplant surgeon at Hopkins, uh, really took on this cause, looked at the data, estimated that there could be 500 or more HIV-positive deceased donors a year, and um, really with the help of the HIV-positive community and um, uh, medical providers, went to Congress and made a case to get this reversed. So in 2013, the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act was signed into law, which made this possible. And so you can see President Obama there standing behind him is Dr. Elmi Mueller, who's the transplant surgeon from South Africa. And um, to her right is uh, Peter Stock, who was the PI on the first NIH multi-site trial. Um, our surgeon, Dori Segev, is always touring the world and giving fancy talks, so he sent Brian Boyarsky, who was the med student at the time, and really put in all the blood, sweat, and tears of lobbying on the Hill, so um, it was really probably the best thing in the universe for him to get to go in Dori's place. So that was 2013, what's happened since then? So we are finally in the implementation stages, although it took a while. So the HOPE Act allows for these transplants to occur, but only within the context of a research trial. And so a few things had to happen. First, the federal law had to be changed, and that was slow going. The government takes their time, and that took till June 2015. The second part was that um, there are actually federally mandated research criteria that were developed by the NIH in conjunction with the CDC, the FDA, and these were only published in November of 2015. 
Finally, the entire organ procurement and transplantation network had to change all of their policies and procedures to actually allow this to happen, since up to that point, everything had been put in place to prevent this from ever happening. Um, so in November 2015, it was finally um, allowed, and uh, many centers, including uh, Hopkins and Mount Sinai, were very eager to get on board. And so what were some of the particular risks that were considered when designing these protocols and thinking about the research um, criteria and safeguards? So first and foremost is the consideration of HIV superinfection. And so with an HIV positive donor, you really anticipate that there is going to be donor to recipient uh, superinfection. I think all of you in this room know that most of all that comes down to what is the drug treatment history of the donor compared to the recipient. And if you do have a expert HIV provider on your team, you can probably come up with a good regimen to protect patients. The other considerations were, would there be higher rates of HIV-related organ dysfunction, for example, HIV-associated renal diseases? And then, of course, we wanted to pay careful attention to donor-derived infections and see if this issue of rejection was actually exacerbated in the setting of using an HIV-positive donor. So uh, with that aim, we set forth to figure out if these um, donors are safe and effective, and we called these studies the Hope in Action Studies. A uh, pilot trial was opened last year at Hopkins where we did the first in the U.S. HIV to HIV kidney and liver transplant. I'm very happy to say that these recipients are doing fantastic, and there now have been many more recipients um, done on a pilot protocol. So these are now the 20 transplant centers in the U.S. who have an open pilot protocol. And New York wins. You guys have 20% of the HOPE centers here. Columbia, Cornell, uh, Mount Sinai, and Montefiore are all centers where patients could go to consider this option. Um, and we now have recently received funding from the NIH, so the first transplants were all done under a pilot protocol. We now have funding to go forth and do a multi-center study. And so the way this study will work is we'll compare outcomes between HIV-positive recipients who receive positive donors versus negative donors. The study will um, enroll 80 in each arm, and it's a non-inferiority design study. So for your patients who might be considering this, this is how the, the trial design will work. First, they just need to meet the standard transplant criteria, so go through the clinical evaluation process. Then they need to meet HIV-specific criteria, and these are federally mandated. They're based on what we learned from the original NIH multi-site study. They need to be on effective ART and have a CD4 count over 200 if they're a kidney candidate, CD4 over 100 if they're a liver candidate. Then they go on the regular transplant wait list for HIV uninfected donors, and under this consented protocol, they can also consider HIV positive donors. So while it's not randomized, the treatment choice will really depend on organ availability, and then we'll co uh, compare outcomes in both arms. So for the HIV positive donors, what um, criteria do they need to meet? So they cannot have an active opportunistic infection or cancer, but um, after going back and forth on this issue, it was decided that any HIV viral load or CD4 count in a donor would be allowed. 
So this again allows for flexibility on the part of the transplant center HIV expert who can determine whether or not uh, they can anticipate an effective regimen in their recipient. So if there's an acutely infected donor, they could potentially consider an organ from them. If there's a donor who is on ART, that's also an option. Um, on the negative arm, the donors are really just determined as they would be for any transplant. But what has been really interesting is that we have found an unexpected benefit of the HOPE Act in that there are donors who come up who have false positive HIV screens. Um, this is because for every donor who's evaluated for transplant, both an antibody and a NAT test for HIV will be done. This is designed to detect that window period of infection. Um, and so if you screen 30,000 deceased donors in the U.S., you're bound to come up with a few false positives. Historically, we couldn't use organs from these donors, but now because of the HOPE Act, these organs can be used um, to save lives. And so this has really been an unexpected uh, benefit. So for the NIH um, trial, which should start enrolling in January of next year, the primary endpoint is a composite event of major transplant and HIV-related complications, again, designed to look at safety and non-inferiority. And then, of course, we have a whole range of secondary endpoints that we're interested in related to HIV disease as well as um, graft function. So, um, I, hopefully I'm still on time, even though I kind of um, had to rush a little bit with the delay, but um, in conclusion, I hope that you all will um, refer your patients who have HIV. Given what we know about outcomes and the survival benefit, I think we absolutely should be offering these patients the opportunity for transplant. I think the uh, question about when to treat hepatitis C is a little bit complicated, there is no guidance in the HCV guidelines yet on this issue. What I personally do in my practice is for kidney transplant candidates, those on dialysis, I do not treat. I um, talk to them about the difference in wait times. If someone really knows they don't want to take a hep C organ, um, we can treat them. But otherwise, I've never had a patient say, yes, I want to stay on dialysis longer. Um, the other thing that I hope you can all help transplant teams with is optimizing antiretroviral therapy. I'm sure you all know this sometimes takes some hand-holding with your patients who've been on a regimen for a long time, but I think it really can make a difference. And then finally, uh, we're now in an era where we can consider the use of HIV-positive donors to expand options for this uh, particular population that faces very high weightless mortality. So with that, I want to thank a huge team at Hopkins who's involved in the HOPE studies. Um, I've listed them all there. And then all of our collaborators at the transplant centers um, across the country. In particular, our partners here at Sinai are, are very active, and they've been um, really leading the charge with us in the pilot phase of the study. So you're lucky in New York to have such great resources. Thank you for bearing with us with the technical difficulties, and thanks for your attention. Okay. You get to shift over to, oh, the, to the seated position. And so, yeah, well, now we have a, uh, thanks a lot, Christine, for that. That was a terrific overview of uh, transplantation HIV positive individuals. So feel free to come down to the mics, and I have a couple questions that we can uh, kick off with. Um, yeah, please go ahead. 
Yes, hi. Did you have any situations where the donor had resisted virus that might have complicated the recipient's regimen? And how did you address that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, when we hear about an HIV positive donor, we have a very rapid decision-making window to decide whether or not to use them. Um, obviously, you'd like to get the genotype back and collect all the medical records, but there really, unfortunately, is not time for that. So with, within the trial, we do get donor blood, and we're going to get all of the resistant testing that you would want. Um, but at the time where you decide to accept the organ, you don't have that available. We have used at least one donor who had perinatally acquired HIV and um, multi-drug resistance. And um, several HIV providers, two from New York and myself, we put our heads together and we came up with regimens for the recipients, um, which worked. They, we did have to do ART changes, but these patients were very carefully monitored. And in the end, the transplant with an excellent organ outweighed the risks of potential viral breakthrough but that will be one of the main outcomes in the study. So, so one of the, the questions on that same theme has to do with, to, to maybe give more insights into why you're not worried about the donor health, what, why uh, in addition to resistance, or are you not worried about the CD4 count and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, I would say that we are worried about the donor health, but we are worried that the CD4 may not be a great metric in the setting of brain death. Um, there is data to suggest, you know, if you come to the hospital with a, a head trauma, you're going to get steroids, you're going to get a lot of things which could artificially lower your CD4 count. So we wanted to give um, investigators some flexibility. Also, Dr. Elmi Mueller, who's done these transplants, didn't check CD4 counts in any of her donors, and everyone did fine, so uh, she didn't have that data when she went forward. Um, as far as the viral load, we just wanted to allow flexibility if you had someone who was newly infected but treatment naive. And we know they could have transmitted resistance, but we can predict what type of transmitted resistance they might have, similar to the case we were talking about before. You know, I think you can come up with a regimen in your transplant recipient that you're pretty sure will protect them. Um, so we do want to make sure the donors are, have good organ function and don't have AIDS, but the CD4 count of viral load um, may not be the best metrics. Let's shift to the attention to the, the liver uh, situation. And you, you mentioned that um, uh, there sometimes you uh, have a, a tough decision about whether their liver failure is bad enough to, to justify waiting, to, to ha increase the probability of getting an organ uh, quickly where must have HIV. It wasn't something that was routinely being collected. Um, now, that because of hope, that's changed. We are going to collect HIV status and we'll have that in the registry. But um, I threw out the number of, you know, so there's probably 10,000 HIV positive individuals on dialysis in this country. So that's the potential size of the wait list, but we really don't know. Okay, terrific. So for, uh, the only, the last one is uh, there's six or seven medical students that want to know how they get to meet the president. Oh, actually, the, uh, Obama. Yes, yes. 